book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. One verse. Take a look at one verse, but we're going to be uh, changing the scriptures around different uh, places. We're going to uh, be looking at uh, various references throughout the message. So Acts chapter 2, and for context, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And that's what I would like to focus on this morning in verse 42 specifically. The fact that the early church, because they were such a powerhouse, the reasons are given to us right in this verse. The reason is because they continued steadfastly in the faith. And they observed four different things. The apostles' doctrine... That was one. That's teaching. They didn't have a Bible back then. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't have the new. It was still being written. But uh, at that point, it was the teaching from the apostles who had been with the Lord Jesus. So the teaching of the word, the apostles' doctrine. And then they continued steadfastly in fellowship. And then they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. That's worship. And then in, in prayers. The focus of praying for one another and praying for various events. And uh, it's a good question to ask ourselves, do we match up to what they did in the early church? I mean, it says in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and about 3,000 souls were saved. And that's in contrast to when the law was given back in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 32, you can look it up on your own. That when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he was receiving the tablets of the law written by the finger of God, it says. He came down off the mount. His face was shining because he had been in the very presence of the Lord. Uh, he didn't even realize it. Second Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that when he came off the mount, he wasn't even aware of the fact that his face was shining, but he was in the presence of the Lord. And when you are in the presence of the Lord in your personal life and you're committed and consecrated to him, you're, you're going to show, there's going to be a radiance in your life. It's going to show. And David spoke about this in Psalm 34 when he had come back from this uh, incident that he had with Abimelech. You know, he was afraid of Abimelech, an, an enemy king, and he didn't know how to get out of it. So, the, so he, he resorted to his own devices and he went over to the wall and he began sc scribbling on the wall and acting like he was writing something. And then uh, he, there we go, uh, and then he started to let the spittle run off of his mouth down, drooled down off his chin, and uh, that's how he got out of that predicament. Abimelech, or Achish, is also, he's also called, says, get this man out of here, this guy's insane. He resorted to his own wisdom, his own strength, and he realized it, and he was ashamed of it, I think, David did, and he went back, and then he penned the uh, words of Psalm 34. You can read it on your own. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And he acknowledges the fact that the Lord had been gracious and good to him. And got him out of those situations. Sometimes we make foolish decisions, don't we? And the Lord still is forgiving and he's patient and he's gracious and he gets us out of those situations. And all we can do is say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. That's what David did. But as he goes down, if you go down that Psalm, Psalm 34, you see it says, they looked unto him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. In other words, when you're in the presence of the Lord, it'll be seen by others. And that's what happened with Moses when he came off the mount. But he came off the mount and he came down to the base of the mount and there were the children of Israel in all sorts of a party atmosphere, we might call it. They had departed easily from the things of the Lord. 
And when Moses came down and confronted them, he said, who's on the Lord's side? Come over on this side. In a sense, he drew a line in the sand. He said to the whole nation of Israel, he said, if you're committed to the Lord, come over here. You know what? No one came except for one group of people, the Levites. And of course, they were rewarded in ministry for service to the Lord for their faithfulness. But the rest of the crowd at the uh, base of the mount did not come over. And for that reason, God judged them in certain ways through uh, the events afterwards. And it says 3,000 people died that day. Isn't that interesting? At the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. The law condemns. The law convicts. The law tells us how we fall short of the things of God. But God's grace and God's mercy in the gospel and in Christ tell us how we can be forgiven of that sin. And so it's very interesting then in verse 41 of this chapter, it says that about 3,000 souls were saved. There in Exodus 32 is the giving of the law, and it's a law of condemnation and judgment. And then here is a, the giving of the gospel and grace and mercy, and we see the forgiveness of God. What a wonderful contrast that we have. The law condemns, grace forgives, and that's found in Christ. Well, because of that backdrop and because of all those things, the word was preached and there were those who gladly received the word. And when they received the word, they were baptized. Now, I don't know everybody in this audience, but let me just mention this. If you agree with the things that are written in the word of God, you gladly receive his word. He takes you to the next level of obedience and commitment and consecration. And that's reflected in baptism. Not if you were baptized already as a baby or baptized when you didn't know what was going on or baptized with a misunderstanding of the word, but here is baptism. And in the scriptures, it seems that uh, in the New Testament, every time anyone was baptized, they were uh, older age. They understood what was going on, but they were definitely believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some have termed that believer's baptism. And it's the next step of obedience to say to all the world, listen, this is the way I used to be. This is the way I am now. And I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean it in just words. I'm showing it with my life. And it's a public declaration saying, I am a believer in Christ. And I want to follow him. I want people to know. And so they gladly, gladly receive the word, baptize, follow the Lord in that step of obedience. And so I want to challenge you right now here in this meeting. If you have never been baptized, first, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus, that's the first step. You need to trust Christ as your Savior and say, Lord, I need your help. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is the way the word uh, is, is worded in the hymn. Uh, first step is to trust Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the first step. And so if you have not trusted Christ as Savior, I would plead with you, like Paul pleaded with others. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we beseech you, we persuade you that you be reconciled with God. And God definitely wants you reconciled to himself. And so uh, that's the first step is to be reconciled to Christ. But then the next step is to take that step of obedience and baptism and following him. So if you've not been baptized, you've trusted Christ and not been baptized, that's the next step. God wants you to be in that position. But now we want to talk about growing in the Lord. The next step is to grow in the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God wants his children to grow. 
we wouldn't plant a garden. You know, you had Brother Essex in this meeting. He was a, well, I don't know if you call him a farmer or not, but I've been over his house before. And you saw all the, you know, fruits and vegetables galore that was part of that uh, plot of ground over there. Well, that takes effort. Cultivation, making sure the garden is weeded, making sure it's watered properly. And when you take those steps, those deliberate, conscious, conscious, uh, intentional steps, you'll, you'll see the evidence of that being produced. And God wants his people to grow in the faith, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to grow in grace from that passage in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3? What does it mean to grow in grace? Well, it doesn't mean that uh, we put a gun to you and say you better grow, you know, and be, be Christ-like. That's growing, trying to grow by the law, and that was what the Galatians were guilty. Read the book of Galatians. It's all about some Christians who are thinking, well, what you have to do is uh, live by a code of rules and conduct and legal, legal mentality and a legal conscience, and then you'll grow as a Christian. And Paul had to come in there and says, no, that's not the gospel of grace. So he had to straighten out that group of Christians. You know, wherever Paul went, he was always straightening out Christians, right? They were the, the, the Corinthians. They were living carnal lives, immoral lives as Christians. He had to straighten them out. And then the Colossian churches, a whole region uh, in an area called Colossae, they were worshiping angels. He had to straighten them out. And then Philippians, they didn't have any real doctrinal matters, but there were personality conflicts within that meeting. He had to straighten them out. And they had to talk about uh, you know, other churches. The Thessalonians, they had the prophecy timetable all mixed up. They thought the Lord had already come. He had to come in there and straighten them out. So wherever the Apostle Paul was going, he was kind of straightening out the Christians because Christians can be wonderfully saved by the grace of God, but then also ignorant of script, the Scriptures and not well-grounded. And so then it behooves us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we're committed to growth in Him. Hence the uh, phrase, or not the phrase, but the verse in 2 Peter Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all starts with the heart and moves on to the mind or the head or in terms of teaching and understanding of the Scriptures. The first meeting, the way that's accomplished is through the breaking of bread, the, the worship service, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The next step is to be here under the sound of the Word, being taught with, by believers, by those who can open the Scriptures up and teach the Word of God. And through our own personal study, through interaction with other Christians, we grow in the things of God. So what's the first thing that we're told about here in verse 42? Well, first off, they continued steadfastly, steadfastness in Christ. I quoted first uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, the verse before it, verse 17, Paul said, You brethren, he's talking to believers, he says, Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. It's easy to get caught up in the things of the world, to let the influences of the world around us, to take away from our passion and our intensity. That's why we established this men's conference. We said rekindling our passion in our personal lives and in our family lives for Christ and our work life to make sure we have a testimony in the workplace, in the marketplace, and then also in the assembly life to make sure we're serving the Lord. And so they continued steadfastly, and what needs to be done is this commitment to Christ. You know, in the book of Leviticus, I think it's chapter 16. You can look it up if you want to on your own some other time. But 
in Leviticus, they had this law of the cleansing of the lepers, and it, it sounded really interesting. It sounds a little harsh, too, but they would take two birds. I think they were sparrows, if I remember right, from that portion. And one of those birds they would kill. And then they would take the blood from that bird that was killed, and they would put it in a bowl. And then they would put that blood that was from that bird that had died and put it on the wings of the live bird. And then they would let the live bird fly free, fly away. Then they would take that bowl of blood from that bird, and they would take it and apply that blood first on the big toe of the right foot. Then they would apply it uh, on the right thumb, the, the big finger, you know, the thumb. And then they would take that blood and also put it on the earlobe, on the right earlobe. And what it was meant to do was to uh, symbolize a complete consecration for the Lord. Wherever we go, wherever we walk, we should be guided by that, that sacrifice that was done on a person's behalf. And then whatever we do with our hands, we should make sure that it's consecrated for the Lord. And whatever we listen to, we should make sure that it's sanctified and it honors the Lord. That's a great principle in the life of the Christian. That's how you can maintain steadfastness, to realize that you're completely owned by the Lord. You're consecrated to Him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter th uh, 6 says that we are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Christian is owned by the Lord. The price has been paid. And so therefore we have a responsibility to be committed to Him and consecrated to Him. And that was the cleansing of the uh, leper. And uh, the person who was cleansed that way had to be fully consecrated. And that's what it means to be steadfast. There's a great verse in Psalm 57, verse uh, 7, I think it's verse 7. It says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I've made a mention of it here before, I'm, I'm sure of it. But uh, in that verse, it says in the King James Version, my heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. And I remember the guy who got bypass surgery saying, that's my life verse now from now on. My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. But, you know, the idea behind that, though, is that it is a full consecration for the Lord. And the Lord wants to warn against it. So how does that take place? Well, the first thing is to be grounded in God's word. Verse 42, the apostles' doctrine. Now, in the New Testament, what this meant was that the apostles, the 11 of them, Judas had already gone out and hanged himself after the uh, events were found out who he was, how he really was. He wasn't a believer. And uh, so now these 11 apostles and the other one, that uh, Matthias, who replaced Judas, they were the apostles, and they had had gotten instruction from the Lord Jesus himself. And so now they were responsible for making sure that teaching got out. And some of the earliest books of the New Testament, the book of Thessalonians, probably didn't come in until 53 or 54 A.D., about 20 years after the Lord had ascended to heaven. So 20 years later. So until that point of time, the apostles were responsible for making sure this teaching got out. And so that the early Christians were uh, grounded in the Word of God. And Christians certainly need to be grounded in God's Word. You can be a believer for many years and not necessarily be grounded. You might be caught up with the things of the local assembly and activities, but not really be taught well. You know, I can't help but think of that a passage. Uh, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David. David, uh, you know, when he came into uh, the position of being king, 
in Israel. He wanted to restore the power and prestige to the nation of Israel. And so uh, he got the Ark of the Covenant, which had fallen into the hands some 20 years before uh, into the hands of the Philistines. And so that eventually had been recaptured. At that point, 20 years previous, the nation of Israel went out to do battle against the Philistines, and uh, they were losing the battle. And so they figured, oh, well, you know, if we're losing the battle. What we need to do is get the Ark of the Covenant. That'll scare away our enemies, and that'll show that we're for God and all that. But they were not walking with the Lord, the Israelites. And they kind of brought that Ark of the Covenant out like a good luck charm. And, of course, the power wasn't in the Ark of the Covenant. The power is in a dedicated life. As a Christian, the power for living the Christian life comes with Christ living through us through clean vessels, being a clean vessel fit for the master's use. That's where the strength comes in the Christian life. And that same principle just carried back to the Old Testament. It was the same with the Israelites. They were not walking with the Lord, and they thought they were walking with the Lord, and they had no power before their enemies, and they were losing the battle. So out comes this Ark of the Covenant. He said, this is it. Let's rally around it. And what happened? They got soundly routed. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so David realized he had made a big mistake. So they thought this, uh, well, the Israelites at that time, 20 years previous, made a big mistake. So they put the Ark of the Covenant off in uh, storage, so to speak. And 20 years later, David comes into power and he says, I'm going to restore the power and prestige to the nation of Israel. So he takes this Ark of the Covenant, which the Philistines had built in a cart that rolled, because when you, when you carried out the Ark of the Covenant, you had to carry it out in a certain way. You had to use sticks on the side. They had rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant. Just picture a big uh, coffee table-sized thing. And they had rings on the side of it, and they put sticks through it, and the sticks were put on the shoulders of properly appointed people. And that's how the Ark was transported. Well, the Philistines, who weren't the people of God, didn't know anything about this, and they made a cart with wheels, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. God made sure that they learned the lesson that they shouldn't handle sacred things that way. They weren't the people of God. So eventually, this Ark of the Covenant came back into the possession of the Israelites, and David, without thinking about it, takes this cart, and he builds a new cart. He says, oh, this thing is 20 years old. Let me get a new cart for the Ark of the Covenant. And he builds this cart, and he puts the Ark of the Covenant on top of it. And they begin rolling this Ark of the Covenant, this Ark that was on the cart, down the path. And it must have hit a bump in the road or something like that and began to slide off of that cart. And Uzzah, one of the guys who was appointed to make sure this Ark of the Covenant was transported, sticks his hand out to catch the Ark of the Covenant as it slides off of this cart. And God strikes him dead on the spot. It's one of three instances in the Bible where God's people were struck dead on the spot doing some spiritual service. Nadab and Abihu, they got struck when they offered strange fire. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they were struck dead. And Uzzah in this instance. What was the problem? They weren't grounded in the word of God. You weren't supposed to use a cart. You were supposed to carry it in a pre-appointed way that God had already lined up. He already said it clearly in his word. And they had not studied the word. And so wherever I go, I want to impress on the Lord's people this. This is God's word right here that we hold in our hands. 
And you know what? We're responsible to know what's in it. And if you don't know what's in it, and you make a wrong decision, you can't claim ignorance. You know, some people, I think they claim ignorance. They think, well, I didn't know that. God says, I gave you the book. Here's the divine manual. You are responsible to know what's in it. And David, he was bewildered. He was puzzled. He was angry. He didn't know what was going on. He was doing the right thing, he thought. He wanted to restore all that privilege and prestige to the nation of Israel. And yet God was preventing him from making any progress in spiritual service until he went back and he inquired and he checked with other Levites and they said, no, this is what it says in the Bible. And uh, they looked back in the book of Deuteronomy and they said, this is how you properly transport the Ark of the Covenant. And when everything was in line, when things were done according to God's word, then they made progress. They did the things properly. And that was brought back. And then there was rejoicing. Then there was thankfulness because they were doing God's work in God's way. And that comes around by studying God's word. And so Christians need to be grounded in God's word. That's what we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know the scripture. Let me read it to you. Uh, we must continue in the things which we've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom we have learned them. And from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, Paul's saying this to Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things. For doctrine, that's teaching. For reproof, that's correcting us when we're going wrong. For correction, that's when we ignorantly go wrong. That's what happened with David. And for instruction in righteousness, how to live the Christian life. And so I would like to challenge everyone here to make a point of being thoroughly grounded in God's word. That's why they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The next thing it says here that they were continuing steadfastly in fellowship. Fellowship with the Lord's people. Someone defined fellowship as two fellows in one ship. And, uh, you know, the idea is that you're together. Now, what is fellowship? Fellowship is not saying uh, what, you know, what the standings are in the baseball field, you know, realm or football or anything like that. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is not talking about the weather. Fellowship is not saying, uh, what would you do this past weekend or this past week or whatever. Fellowship is talking around the things of Christ, enjoying the company of God's people around the person of Christ. Do you realize that uh, eight different times in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is identified as being in the midst, M-I-D-S-T. That means in the middle. Four times apply to believers. Four times applies to the world in general. In other words, the Lord Jesus, just to give you an example, the Lord Jesus, when he was just 12 years old, he was in the midst of the temple and he was talking to the teachers there and asking them questions, not because he needed to know anything. He was checking, uh, not checking them out, but he was, he was giving them diagnostic questions to help them see their own ignorance. It says that he was in the midst of the temple. In John chapter 19, it says he was in the midst of two thieves, the one on the right, one on the left. God divides humanity into two groups. He's in the midst. And then it talks in Acts chapter 3 about him being in the midst of his brethren. He's in the midst of Israel, according to the prophecies uh, from the book of Deuteronomy. And a number of different in the midst passages. In the midst of the congregation while I sing praise unto thee. And then Roman, Revelation chapter 5, he's in the midst of the throne room of heaven. Every time we see the Lord Jesus, he's in the midst. 
And he should be in the very center of our conversation. He should be in the center of our plans. We should be looking to him preeminent in all things, Paul said to the Colossians. And so in our fellowship with uh, God's people, not that you can't talk about, you know, the New York Mets, if they're going to make it this year, or, you know, any other team. Not that you don't, can't talk about that, but to make sure that the Lord Jesus is front and center in your life, enjoying the fellowship with the Lord's people. I'll tell you this. There are times that I've learned things in my Christian life, that I've learned some from the Scriptures, a lot from the Scriptures, just being under the sound of the Word. But there has been also that teaching that comes just by conversation with people. You know, uh, Jim here has mentioned many times his own father-in-law, Bob Bateman. I used to have dinner with him every now and then. And uh, we'd be having conversation. And uh, Brother Bateman from the Linwood Assembly, he'd, he'd say some nugget. I'd say, say that again, Bob. Is that my? Say, this is in fellowship. You know, I'm just having dinner with him. And like it's, uh, I'm in a Bible school. And, you know, after a while, he, you know, we're finishing up. He says, well, we've skirted this mountain long enough. You know, we're talking about some sort of doctrinal thing. Now, whether you realize it or not, that is a phrase from the book of Deuteronomy. You've skirted this mountain long enough, just like that. And he would incorporate that. And, you know, I got the, the sense and the understanding of how to apply a certain scripture in a situation. You get that from fellowshipping with the Lord's people. You know, you ladies in the meeting here, tremendous Bible knowledge in, 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 in the minds of God's people. And even though the scripture has certain parameters for the use of ministry in regard to women, I've come off the platform many a time and had a conversation with one of the ladies in the meeting, and she would say, you know, I really appreciate what you had to say, and this is what I also learned about this portion. And I would sit there spellbound at how this woman just opened up the scriptures to me. That's come from, that comes from fellowship with the Lord's people. You learn so much from being around the Lord's people, the company of the Lord's people. How important it is to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord's people. Not just coming to the meeting and then driving home and just having superficial contact. Sometimes you can have 30 or 40 years of superficial contact. You really don't know somebody but to really enjoy the fellowship around the Lord and uh, talking in conversation with other people about Christ. Well, that's one of the reasons why they continued steadfastly. And that's why they were growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, because they spent time with one another. As soon as a fellowship stops spending time with one another outside the uh, certain meetings of the church, there's, a, there's, there's something missing in the vibrancy of that testimony. And so fellowship with the Lord's people is so, so critical. The third thing that is found in verse 42 is the breaking of bread. This is the worship meeting that's being referred to. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says, On the first day of the week they gathered together to break bread. It was the chief meeting of the church. I don't have to tell this assembly. Brother Reed, John Reed, wrote that book on the chief meeting of the church. And uh, it is the centerpiece. The worship meeting is the centerpiece. And the reason for the breaking of bread is so that our hearts are affected. Our hearts are worn by being in the presence of Christ. Remember that account in Luke chapter 24, what we call on Resurrection Sunday? The world calls it Easter Sunday. Some of us call it Easter Sunday. You know, Easter is a, a, a contraction for asterisk, 
has to do with fertility and all the rest of that. Uh, the fertility religions and the Canaanite religion. And Ashtoreth contracted out is Easter. And so that's why you have these things about, you know, bunnies having eggs and all the rest. Makes no sense. Bunnies don't have eggs. But nevertheless, we get, you know, carried on with this for generations that bunnies have eggs. But, you know, it's not Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. Because we emphasize the resurrection of Christ. And on that day, the Lord Jesus met with these people on the road to Emmaus. And they were saddened. And that journey, which lasted an afternoon, started out with sadness. Why are your countenances fallen, the Lord Jesus said. They, they said, are, are, and they, they turned to him. They didn't know who he was. They said, haven't you heard the events that take place today? They were ignorant of the resurrection and what it could do in a person's life. And so they started sadly. It was sadness. It was marked by sadness. And it continued on. It says their eyes were blinded. So it was characterized by blindness spiritually. They weren't blind to the fact that the Lord was with them. But then it transitioned to an awareness. So it was sadness and blindness. And then there was an awareness. So all of a sudden they came to a point at the end of the journey where the Lord Jesus broke the bread Interestingly account, and as soon as he broke the bread, they acknowledged who he was. In the very presence of the Lord, changed their whole attitude. That's why we come together every week. We need a divine reset every single week because we get beat up during the week, don't we? And we need a divine reset. Renew our hearts and re mind ourselves of the promises of God and the love of Christ for us. That's why the Lord has established that meeting. And so after they acknowledged him, they ran back. Now here, just get the picture, right? Luke 24. They walked all afternoon, all afternoon with the Lord. They acknowledged who he was and they ran all the way back after doing that trip with gladness in their hearts because they had seen the Lord. It started with this sadness and this blindness transitioned to an awareness and it ended in gladness. And that's what happens when you spend time with the Lord. And the Lord has established the breaking of bread for this purpose. The worship, this is where the heart is affected. The apostles' doctrine, that's where the mind is affected. The Lord said to the Pharisees there, you should love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so we start with a heart. Everything is with a heart, but then it transitions to the mind. We get the proper teaching, the proper direction. And it all starts with the breaking of bread, opening our hearts to the Lord. Let me just take a moment to express how that is. Um, it's, uh, if you just take a look for one second to Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll see a passage right there that uh, is one of my favorite in chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, well, for context, that the Lord, that verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Verse 18. Well, you know that word understanding right there? Uh, literally, that means heart. And some of you may have versions that say that. The eyes of your heart. And so it is the heart where decisions are made for Christ. 
And that comes from the breaking of bread, understanding all that He has done for us. And so the breaking of bread. Finally, there's prayers, as it says in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. Prayers, the importance of prayer, not only personally, but corporately as well. And someone has said the seven days without prayer makes one week, right? W-E-A-K. And that's often the case with all of us. It was mentioned in a previous meeting. When we sit, all of a sudden we're going through our, what do I have to get done? What do I need to get finished here? What's, the, what's on the list? What do I do later on today? And sometimes we just don't sit in the presence of the Lord and enjoy His goodness and presence to us in our lives. And, uh, you know, I always like that trilogy. It's Psalm 4610 says, Be still and know that I'm God. God wants us to be still and know that He's God. And that's an attitude of prayer. Be still and know I'm, I'm God. And then there's that verse in Ezekiel, or rather Exodus 14, 13. It says, Stand still and know the salvation of the Lord. Let Him work. So there's times in our lives we need to stand still. One is the worship. One is for our work. We just have to stand still. And that great verse in Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, it says, sit still and know how the matter will go, knowing that the man will not finish until, uh, will not rest until he's concluded the matter of this day. It was Boaz, and it's a picture of Christ, knowing his work on our behalf. But sometimes we're like Martha, and we want to work, 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 and try to get things done and get checked off our list, and however it was said earlier today. We need to be still in the presence of the Lord. Stand still, be still, know that he's God. All those things. It takes prayer, the presence of the Lord, being in his presence. This is the biggest challenge for me. I want to get to something and work on it. And just to be like Mary, the Lord Jesus said, be still and, and, and to her, and she was in a sense. And so she sat at the feet of Christ. Mary was a learner, but Mary was a worshiper. And we need to know that as well. And so it all starts, really, continuing steadfastly with these four things. So here's the checklist that we need to uh, match up our lives against. Are we learning and studying the Word of God? Not just coming to a meeting and having it given to us. Now there's that responsibility to go back and incorporate in our own personal lives. That's teaching, the teaching of the Word of God. How do we do in terms of fellowship? Are we enjoying the fellowship of the Lord's people? Do we rush right home after the meeting and we have no more contact with the Lord's people or are we making ourselves available to talk and have conversation with God's people? Are we making it a priority for the breaking of bread? I was here in the meeting this morning and there was a much smaller group here. God says in his word, the Lord Jesus said, this, that is the priority in the meeting. There's no way around it. That's what the word of God tells us. That's the worship. That's where the heart is affected where we remind ourselves what Christ has done for us. And then prayer. Prayer meeting is probably the, the smallest meeting in our, in our assembly, smallest meeting, the prayer meeting. And yet, if we're to continue steadfastly and to be the powerhouse that God wants us to be, prayer has to be behind it. And so I don't say this to convict everybody. The Holy Spirit does that job. I have to speak to my own heart about these matters. But that's the reason why the church was so powerful in the first century. I want to just take just 30 seconds and have you turn your Bibles to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. These are the 
This is the testimony of the psalmist, and it should be our testimony as well. Why do I do what I do? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Some people ask me, you're busy, you do a lot of things. I say, listen, if I worked in the business field for 12 years, secular business for a number of years, and if we give our heart and soul to the business field, and for our corporation, we should do a lot more than that for the Lord Jesus. So Psalm 116, here's the utterance of someone. We don't know who it is. Might have been David. Might have been somebody else. This is what he said. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my supplications because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. That's a declared testimony from the psalmist. He says, I'm going to call upon him as long as I live. The pangs of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol, the grave, laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. That's what his testimony was. And God did that. Gracious is the Lord. Righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low. He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. That's a divine soliloquy taking place. He's talking to himself. Sacred soliloquy, as someone called it. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me, delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke. I'm greatly afflicted. I said to my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And this is the culmination of verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And all the way through this psalm, you'll see, I will. Verse 2, I will call. And then in verse 13, uh, verse 9, I will walk. And then in verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation. And in verse 14, I will pay my vows. And verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And again in verse 18, I will pay my vows in the presence of all his people. That's continuing steadfast in the things of Christ. So how are you doing? in that department. How am I doing? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. The Lord loves us, and he cares for us. He did all he could do to win you to himself. And so now we should rightly serve him with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And may that be so for the Lord's sake. Let's close in prayer.